Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. Uh, we're going to Second Peter chapter one. Start right at verse one this evening. Second Peter one, verse one. Second Peter's way in the back. If you find First Peter, then you'll find Second Peter. It's right behind it. Go back uh, a lot of years for me when we were buying Gerber baby food and feeding the children. And they don't remember a whole lot about that, I bet. And they're probably thankful they don't. Um, some of the harder uh, items to feed, I found, was carrots. They don't seem to like the carrots. The peas never went over well. Uh, the green beans did not go over too well. And we learned to mix those with other things. Um, the green beans could go very well with Hawaiian Delight. Uh, we, we would mix the uh, peas with the Dutch apple dessert, and that worked pretty good. Or sometimes we'd just stir it in with the powder uh, rice cereal or oatmeal cereal or such, and we'd mix those in. And carrots and oatmeal must have been pretty good. Uh, we got that down on too. But you don't remember that at all, do you? <laughs> Those things were nasty. We wouldn't eat them, but uh, we made our kids eat them. I remember. <laughs> but um, you also had to learn a technique how to feed. And I had six different approaches I would use, depending on the day and the child, uh, how I would do this. And maybe you did too, but... To get them to open their mouth to eat, you use the machinery method, which was either a bus or an airplane or uh, a boat or something, a train coming their way. And you got to make all the noises, you know, the kind of sounds to get them to laugh. They open their mouth and in it goes. It worked pretty good. That was method number one. Method number two was the reverse psychology approach. That was don't eat this, don't eat this. And you know what? They would every time. And it was funny to see that, but I said, don't eat that, and they would eat it. The scientific approach really never worked. Why do you eat this kind of food? How, how the value of the nutrients and all that, that never went over for a kid, so that one doesn't ever work. There was a threatening approach. Maybe you're good at that one. The threatening approach where you use their middle name, when you're feeding them to get them to take a bite. Uh, the, you're going to sit there until you finish approach. That one works? No? It didn't work for us either. Because they could sit there forever and not care. And that was a tough one. And then there was a second threatening approach where you just said, Eat! <laughs> you remember those days? Maybe you're feeding grandchildren now. And you've, you've tried the airplane. The airplane worked the best. Or the elevator. And they start laughing when the spoon's up there and in it goes. There's all kinds of different approaches. How do you think Peter told his people to grow? Last week we were in chapter 3, verse 18, and it was like this. Grow! Right? It was a command. It was an imperative. And it was, it was almost a sense of desperation in the way he finished his book, because the reality was, you're either growing or you're not. There wasn't a safe place to sit, because according to verse 17 in chapter 3, 
If you are not growing, you are susceptible to falling for error, unprincipled men, and falling from your own steadfastness. And Peter was desperate that his people don't fall, that they stand strong and firm in their day. And so he, in a very strong voice, said, Eat! Grow! Spend time with the Lord. You can sense it as he gets to that last place. You need this. So, I thought that was a very clever, very important way to address people in their need. And it, wouldn't you know it, he started his book with the issue of growth too. That's where we're going to be here tonight. We're going to look at chapter number one and the first couple of verses, one and two, and we're going to see his desire for them to grow there as well. These are perfect bookends for this book. Grow is in verse one, or in the verse first paragraph, and grow is in the last paragraph. And that's what he desired for them. So we're going to look at that. So let's start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much for your desire for us to grow in our knowledge of you. And I pray, Lord, that tonight, as we spend some time in this passage, you might work in our hearts and draw us to yourself. Um, help us to understand and help us to, to grab hold of this um, desire to grow and want it for ourselves. So work in our hearts, we pray tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, travel back to chapter number one with me here. The first two verses, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This I call the pastor's wish. All right? I don't know if you've ever thought of Peter as a pastor. Peter was told to feed the sheep, right? Several times the Lord told him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And yet, if we go back... Uh, looking through the eyes of the historian, the church historian many times, and especially on the uh, Catholic side of things, they present a different look for a Peter. This very big man who would be kind of aloof a little bit, kind of uh, like a, almost like a statue himself as he walked around in a pious way and carrying some giant stick in his hand, maybe with a cross at the top. And, and the whole impression they always gave us, if you just use those pictures from the 1500s or 1600s or so, was that Peter was just a, a great leader, administrator type, popish type. They always want to portray him like that. But a pastor actually gets in there with the, with the church folks and ministers to him. Um, Peter is writing... And I, I could only say this in somewhat of a joking manner, if you could appreciate this. But it's almost like in a COVID situation. Where is his congregation? If you go to his first epistle, they're scattered. They're not even there. He has to use the pen to minister to them. He's wishing he had Zoom, right? So he could contact his people and reach them. But they're scattered. He said in chapter 1 of First Peter, they're scattered everywhere. All over Asia Minor, his, that's his congregation, just spread out because of persecution. 
And I'm sure he wished they were all together and he could minister to them in one place. Here is the second letter he wrote to those people. And he will mention that and we'll see that as we get in further into the book. But he's writing to them and he, he's expressing concerns that a pastor would have for his flock. And I think they're very dear to read. But when you start chapter 1 in verse number 2, the, the words that he say here, it's, it's really quite uh, a special way to express something. We call this in Greek the optative mood. Optative mood is where you start with the word, oh, <laughs> it was like, oh, I wish this were true. Oh, I wish you would do this. It, it's not necessarily reality, because then he would encourage them to keep doing it, or it's not to, the kind of a command where he says, start doing it, but he's just dumping his heart out right in the very first phrase. Oh, I wish this were true. Oh, I wish this were of you. And I think that's interesting because he starts his letter in this way. By the time he reaches the end, he's commanding them to grow. It's his desire, and it gets stronger and stronger as he's expressing the very concerns that he has for that congregation. Jude and Peter address the very same thing. False teachers. False teachers. Peter will warn you, as he warns these people, that they are, they, they're going to get into your church. They're going to get into your church and they're going to be uh, really difficult people within your church causing divisions and, and such. And he goes into descriptive terms in this book about what they look like and the fact that they're coming. They're coming, they're coming. You can sense his urgency. And he says, this is why I want you to grow. I want you to be strong in your knowledge of Christ because these guys are going to counteract that. They're going to dict it. They're going to teach you things that are false. When Jude writes, which is probably just shortly after, he says, and now they're here. And that's the difference between the two letters. Peter warns, they're coming. They're just about here. Be ready. And Jude writes and he says, they're in your church. They're already there. And so both of them with the same urgency about them, both of them dealing with a congregation that they don't want to be caught unaware. They're concerned about that, and they come to the same conclusion. We need to grow. We need to grow. We need to grow. And so look at these words and put the word oh in front of it, like, oh, I wish grace and peace were multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our Lord, and of our Lord Jesus our Lord. This is his heart's desire. That grace and peace be multiplied. What do you do when you multiply something? It gets bigger, right? That's the whole point of multiplication. I thought addition and subtraction was okay, but that multiplication thing, that was a new thing when I was in, what, second or third grade? You remember that? They introduced you to that, and you said, well, that doesn't make sense. How did that number 2 plus 2 change to 2 times 2? And they still come out to what? Four. So it seems logical that four plus four and four times four. No, that's not logic. Because one comes out to eight and the other comes out to sixteen. And you say, how did that work? It's just, it was something new for us to learn. Multiplication. Have you ever put that in the sense of your knowledge of the Lord? Not just addition, but multiplication. In your knowledge of the Lord, when you're referencing grace and peace, be multiplied to you in the knowledge 
of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would, I would suggest this, that if you're aiming for multiplication this year, you're going to grow deep. Most of us say, well, let's just go with the addition method. Try multiplication. Grow deeper, deeper, deeper. Bigger numbers in this. But this is Peter's desire. His goal as a pastor, if you will, is that they grow. And Peter is an interesting man. You know some things about Peter. You've not only read the stories of Peter, and usually they're, they're referenced as, boy, did he put his foot in his mouth and things like that. Uh, we normally pick on Peter a little bit with the different things that show up about him that are not flattering. Uh, he denied the Lord. He sank in the water. Uh, he fell asleep in the prayer meeting. Uh, we bring up all those little things, don't we? Which we probably would have done too. But uh, that's that was him and not us. But when we talk about Peter and we talk about his desire for these people, look at this title that he put next to his name. And I think this is, a, is something that's usually passed by very quickly. But I want to show you something that's very, very interesting. The, the first description he has of himself is a bondservant or a bondslave. I don't know what your translation would read there. A slave, a bondslave, such like that. Do you know it took him 34 years to put that down on paper? When he wrote First Peter, he did not use that term. If you go through his life, that was something he resisted with all his heart. Take, for example, Luke chapter 22. They're in the upper room, right? What's going on in the upper room? <laughs> they, they all wanted the best seat, didn't they? They all rushed in there. I, I've always got this picture in my mind because they might have taken steps on the outside of the building to get up to the upper room, and, and they had been arguing on the way, who's the greatest? Isn't that a great conversation? It works really well going into a meal like this, where they're, they're talking about who's the greatest, who's the greatest, and I could see them kind of elbowing each other, trying to get ahead of each other, like third graders to going out for recess. Um, they're, they're jockeying their way up the steps to get there, because they know first one in can shoot right to that table. There were seats of preference. And they wanted to sit in the best seats. That was on either side of Christ. Now, if you study the passage well, there was one reserved seat on one side of Jesus and one reserved seat on the other. The one was pretty much anchored by John. Why? It was for the youngest. John always had the best seat because he said, you know, that's where the youngest gets to sit. And when we read of the upper room, guess who's leaning on his breast? It's John. Now, on the other side was the sea of honor. And if you read the passage closely, there was one who sat there who was close enough you could dip your bread in the, in the gravy or whatever it was, the juice, and hand it to him. Who was that? Jesus. Judas. And from all the other instances I read, Peter was probably on the other side of the table. Because he's making motions to John. Ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. And I think, Peter wasn't fast enough. <laughs> he didn't get up the stairs as quick. But he was part of that argument. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And one thing they learned that night was what Jesus did. 
Remember, he, he put on the, the apron and he took the basin and he went about to wash their feet. Who gave him the most resistance? Peter did. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, then you have nothing to do with me. He says, oh, then give me a whole bath. All right, extremist. He goes on either side there. But what was interesting was Jesus then turns and says, and which of you wants to be the greatest? Oh, he knew their hearts, didn't he? He says, which of you wants to be the greatest? You must be what? The least. The servant. He used the word deacon when he described it. That was a hard word for Peter to swallow. That was the guy who washed your feet. That's that servant's job. That's not for me. I'm supposed to be the greatest. I'm supposed to be above all these things. And yet, when Peter wrote First Peter, he just calls himself the apostle. And when he gets to Second Peter, he starts with the slave. I think, wow. There was a change in his heart that brought him to write that word. I don't know how hard it was to write. It's the word doulos. That is a slave. Matter of fact, let me give you six descriptions of a slave under the term doulos. Because there were a lot of other terms you could have used. But first one, this is the most abject and servile term for a slave of all the five words that were available in the Greek language. This was the lowest, the word doulos. The second one, it came from the word deo, D-E-O, which means to bind. And a, a doulos, or slave, was one who was bound as a slave. Bond servant. You see the word there, maybe in your English. They're, they're attached to that position and they cannot get out. They're tied to it. The third word designated him primarily, this doulos, was one who was born that way. He didn't become a slave because he had bad debts and he got into trouble with something and, and then ended up a slave. This is one who was born into that house as a slave. And usually because mom and dad were in that house as servants, they figured that's their job too for their whole life. And guess what happens to their children? They are too. So that was one word they designated. Dulas was one born as a slave. Another one is this. It referred to one whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. That's not easy, is it? To have whatever you desire to be set to the side just for the desire of the one you serve. No matter what, their will goes first. That's not easy. Number five, if you're counting, the one who serves another to the disregard of his own interest. Like the believer serves his Lord with an abandon that says, nothing matters about me so as long as the Lord Jesus is glorified. You see a lot of the apostles and some of the others who write the gospel or the, the epistles will use that word bondservant, bondslave over and over again. And they were looking at Christ not as a, uh, as the typical slave that you'd see in the world, but they would use that term to say, you know, I, I would rather serve Jesus and see him glorified than have anything to do with me. Nothing matters to me, but that he is glorified. And that's generally what they were saying. Number six that goes along this is, it's a word of one who is bound to another in bands that only death can break. 
That's where it ends as far as they're concerned. And I say, what a picture this is. There's a, a theologian commentary uh, writer, a uh, Lutheran one, by the way, by the name of Lenski. And he said, the connotation of doulos is not service or involuntary service, but unquestioning submission to Jesus Christ's will. Unquestioning submission. It took Peter a little while to write that word. You don't see it of him till you start to see it here, where he writes and he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant. And I think that's kind of cool when I, when I look this through, because he could have just used that word apostle again. He was the apostle, wasn't he? I mean, there were 12 or Peter or Paul joined in later. There was 13 of them at least. But he could have easily said apostle. That, that satisfied the first time he wrote. He was writing to people who were suffering, people who were struggling. Uh, they were under all kinds of uh, persecution in that day. Nero was on the throne, by the way. And he could have easily just used the word apostle and said, this is what I want you to do. But here he's dealing with people who are going to deal with heresy in their own church. He's dealing with those who are, who are going to watch what he's going to call dogs returning to their vomit. And pigs, after they've been cleaned up, will go back to their, their wallowing in the mire. And there are people that are going to mock your Lord in chapter 3. And he's talking about these that they're going to see, they're going to experience. And those could be their friends. People they worship with. And I like the way Peter brings himself down to a servant level here to say, I want to help you with this. I want to help you. And I want to reach you on that level too, where they are. Because when, when we start to understand the, the beauty of, of just acknowledging the Lord is sovereign among us, we're all his servants. It changes the way we talk to each other even. The way Peter starts to talk to them. We're going to see more of this, but in the middle of verse 1. He's talking to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. I want to follow this with you just for a minute, because as he starts to, to talk about this title of being a, um, you know, a servant and all these things, he says, I am an apostle still, right? You see that at the front. I'm both a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And you say, okay, well, there it is. Now he just set himself up again. But do you know what an apostle was? Simply put, one sent with a message. That's what the word means. To be sent. Sent with a message. And he says, I'm just an apostle. I'm sent. I'm not the sender. I'm bringing a message. I didn't write it. It's, it's not my message. I just carry it. I'm just being obedient. So put those words together and what do you have? The servant of Jesus Christ who sent with the message, he wrote it, I deliver it, I'm just being obedient. And if you say it all that way, then suddenly you could say, now, let me model for you what you ought to be too. You're given a message. Deliver it. Hard times? Yeah. Deliver it. Be obedient. Be a servant. And he's calling them down to that level. And I think that's rather interesting as he starts this off. Uh, the triumph of Christ's servants, Matthew Henry wrote, 
is engaging others to enter in or abide in the service of Christ. More times than not, do we want to duplicate servants among us or something else? What is the triumph of a good servant of Christ but to make more servants of Christ? To encourage more to follow him with that kind of uh, abandoned submission to follow him with all your heart. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to model for other people? Wouldn't you like them to see that in you? That you love the Lord Jesus so much you do and serve him in any way you can so that they could learn to do it too. Here's Peter setting up his congregation with, with simple things like, I want you to be active in service. Now, you would suggest that that's Peter's job. He should be telling them that, right? Grow. He should be telling them that. But the way he starts his whole letter is quite different. He says, we're talking on like planes here. My faith is the same as your faith. You see it in this verse? You have a faith. You have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. The Jews could hardly believe it. The first time a Gentile was saved, they're thinking, well, that's impossible. They actually had a great big conference in, in Acts chapter 15 on what do we do with these Gentiles that get saved? It was a remarkable concept to them that a Gentile would turn to the Lord. They didn't know what to do with that at first. The Lord gave them instruction and then they knew what they needed to do. And they reached out to the Gentiles. But it never really seemed to be easy for a Jew to want to serve a Gentile. And a Gentile, for that matter, to want to serve a Jew. And even Paul had to write to that. said, there's no wall between you. Remember in Ephesians 3? The barrier's been broken down. It's not a matter of this Jew or that Gentile. He says, we're all in Christ. Where there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave or free. Now there's another department. Peter's audience was made up of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. Here he's an apostle, and he's in the mix. And you would think, well, of all people, if we're putting ranks out there, you should say, the apostle ought to go first. Apostle versus church member. But he doesn't set it up that way. He says, we all have a like faith. We have a like faith. Jew, Gentile, apostle, slave, first century, second century, 3rd century, 20th century, 21st century, a like faith. Think about that for a minute. Is that precious to you? That's what Peter calls it. We have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And before long, he's going to add the word precious to it. He says, we have this. This is precious to us. A precious faith. Think of how, how simple this is. When scripture says the just shall live by faith, it says it four times. Four times it's mentioned in scripture. Maybe that's your homework this week. Go find out where all four they are. But every time that phrase comes up, the just shall live by faith, what else is there for us to live by? We have this faith, don't we? 
We've been given this faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that unites a weak brother to a strong brother in Christ. It purifies the heart of one as much as it purifies the heart of another. It's what a sincere believer has and the shaky believer has. The young believer and the old believer. They have the same faith. Now that's something when we stop and look around this room, we could all say when we were saved, I'd say 1976. You might have some date long before that. You might have a date sometime after that. But when we stop and rehearse it, it's not the date. It's the faith. Your faith and my faith, like faiths. Peter says, your faith and my faith, like faith. Because they're anchored in one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings that up so quickly, he says, this is what we have. Faith in whomsoever you find it holds to the same precious Savior. That's who you have, that's who I have. A precious Savior, and it has the same promises. And we're going to get into those in verse number 4. So Peter is starting with this group, and he says, You have faith. I have faith. So we're starting on the same plane here as we start to talk about our needs in this present day. We have the same faith. I, I like to define faith. Because I'm, I just love words, and they always have to have a definition. And faith is firm conviction. You want a good term for it? I like that one. Firm conviction. This is what you have, and this is what I have. He says it simply this way. Simon Peter, a slave and a sent one with a message of Jesus Christ to the ones having received an equally precious, firm conviction. I like that. He's addressing them in their place. They have this in the sense that they're equal. Notice where it comes from, just real quickly in verse number one, is the righteousness from our God. You didn't make it. I didn't make it. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't create this righteousness. That righteousness belongs to the Father, to God. It's His. So if I have that, and you have that, and neither of us made it, what's that make us? We're equal in that picture, aren't we? It's the Father's righteousness. Some people like to measure themselves to other people according to righteousness. Did you know that? I do better things than they do. You know, we've got this little pecking order that we, we operate by. and We say, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. Usually that is not a good thing, right? But I do this, and they don't do that. The Pharisees did that all the time. You ever read the Gospels and get annoyed with a Pharisee? It's just every time they're there, they're like, we do it this way. But you're disciples. And they always look down at him and say, ah, they don't do it right. They don't do it right. We still have Pharisees in this world, believe it or not. But no matter how you cut it, our salvation is a supernatural act of God. It's something he's done. The work of God from start to finish is an incredible thing. And we don't take credit for it. It's what God has done. And right away, Peter is saying, you have the same kind of faith that we have in the righteousness of our God. That's the difference that it makes. 
We receive this because God gave it to us. God gave it to us. He gave us our service. He gave us our equal standing before Him. He gave us our righteousness. He gave us everything. He would go on to say in verse number 4 that He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises as well. Everywhere you start to read Peter talking about what we have, he makes reference to God gave it to us. I think it's a good thing to to sort through and say yes. So where where's the pride in that? Where do we stand up and say, see, I did it. I did it. I've got it. Even the titles? Nope. Not the titles. Everything is the same as Peter starts this. So why am I pointing this out so much? Because when he talks about growth, guess who needs to grow? Everybody in Christ. No one stands way up here and says, okay, you guys grow, I've made it. They all need to grow. So Peter's wish, his desire, the urging of his heart, that they are growing in the knowledge of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, Peter was there too, and that's where Peter is now. He's growing. He's still growing. And that's where we all should be. There's just a simple picture here, that when you lay the foundation of who we are in Christ, which is a phenomenal thing, (laughs) that he's given us this, that's an phenomenal thing but that's not where it stops he says now grow in it grow in it all of you appreciate your salvation don't you glad it's yours yes how well do you know it there's still more to learn isn't there there's still more to learn So, this is where Peter starts us off. And I just wanted to lay that foundation for you so you understand what he's asking for. What he wants them to be. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, or Jesus our Lord. You know I love to read to you the Amplified Version. It's always fun. May God's grace, His favor... And his peace, which is perfect well-being, all necessary good, all spiritual prosperity and freedom from fears and agitating passions and moral conflicts, be multiplied to you. Not in a lot of words. <laughs> it's like, wow, how do you describe peace? Well, they give you about seven words or eight words there to just describe what peace looks like. He wants it to be full in you, be personal in you, be precise in you, be correct in you. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Kenneth Weiss, the uh, Greek scholar, he used to work up at Moody Bible Institute teaching there. He said, sanctifying grace to you and tranquilizing peace. That interesting combination. Sanctifying grace and tranquilizing peace be multiplied in the sphere of and in the experiential knowledge which the believer has of God, even Jesus our Lord. That's interesting. Phillips makes it so much easier. The Phillips translation, um, he says, may you know more and more of God's grace and peace as your knowledge of him grows deeper. Right to the point. Right to the point. So, where are we in what we're looking at? Start with the subjects. Grace and peace. How well do you know those? Now, grace is a big topic. I always think of grace, and I've told you this 
before, but I picture it like a little kid in a giant suit. Grace is something you need to grow in, but it's too big for you. And it always will be too big for you. God's grace is just an incredible thing to try to fathom in the mind. How could he forgive us? And matter of fact, how could he take our sins and cast them away and never remember them again? When this is a God who's omniscient. Have you ever tried to put those two together in a puzzle? Those pieces don't fit, we think. It's like, how does grace work? How does it fit? How do we ever deserve? Well, that's the point. We don't deserve, do we? Grace. How many different ways have we tried to define that over the years? You know some of the ways they've said it. What are, what are some of the definitions? Expense. Yes, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's one way we do it. Another way? Grace is God giving something to us that we don't deserve. Mercy? God not giving to us what we do deserve. Unmerited favor. There's so many. I, I, Dr. John Talley, he's now with the Lord. He taught at Southeastern Bible College, and I had the joy of sitting in one of his classes when I was a student there. And he said grace was God's help when you need it. That's his definition. And I thought that through a lot. I said, you know what? I need it all the time. <laughs> Isn't that the measure of grace? Grace is, is all the time. All the time. There's, there's so many different definitions that we use for grace. But how well do we know it? We try to define it, but how well do we know it? I had a friend back in Indiana. This was his theology. God cannot love me more than he does now. God will not love me less than he does now. I thought, hmm. That was the way he liked to explain his relationship with God. God loves me. And it won't ever grow more because he loves me completely. And it will never grow less because he never changes. So that's pretty deep. That's kind of interesting. But when you talk about God's grace, have you ever tried to wrap your head around that, to, to think of what that is? What does it mean to have it? And what does it mean that it's multiplied? In the knowledge of him. Because almost every single time the word growth comes onto a page in scripture, the word grace is somewhere nearby. Why is that always a combination? And what is that we're supposed to be growing in? Like he says in chapter 3 verse 18. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to guess that so many of us just take the word and say I'm glad I have it. But we don't take enough time to learn it. To study it. To let it multiply. What does that look like? That's a, that's a rich word. Peace is the other word that he mentions. You can see it right there in verse 2. Peace be multiplied to you. Now, I've given you definition of peace over the years several, several times. It talks about a harmonious relationship with God. We use such verses like Romans 5 verse 1. Where it talks about, we have uh, been justified by faith, so we have peace with God, right? 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We say, that's good. I like peace. But what is it? It's not the lemonade and the shade tree in the summer. All right? I know that sounds wonderful, especially if the kids or grandkids are somewhere else and you don't hear all that. You just could relax and enjoy quiet. But that's not the definition of peace. Peace is when things are put together correctly. When they're operating efficiently. When they're working just like they should and they're producing the results they're supposed to. That's peace. A harmonious relationship. My picture to you every time I say it is a picture of a gearbox in the transmission of your car. Those gears are made to go together a certain way. They blend together with those teeth so that they produce exactly what you want them to do when you move your gear shift. If you put it in drive, it's supposed to go this way, if that's the way you're looking. If you put it in reverse, it backs up this way. You expect that, don't you? Are you surprised if it works the opposite? What do you do when it does? It's time to get a new car. <laughs> it's time to take it to the shop. It's time to get something done. But what happens if you put it in one of those and you hear the worst sound you've ever heard in your life? And your car is shaking and there's maybe a little smoke coming out of that little box in the middle of the floor underneath you and it's making this terrible, terrible sign. That would tell you something. Something is broken. It's automatic. You say, oh, you know, you know something's not right. The word peace comes from the Greek verb iro, which means to join. That means it's put together right. When two things are put together right so that they work right, so that they're efficient, so that they bring the right results, everything works like it should, that's called peace. But when something is out of line, everybody knows it. Just like a transmission makes a ton of noise. When Christians are out of step with the Lord, how do you feel? Peaceful? No. You know it. I know it too. We feel miserable. Why? Because we're not walking with the Lord as we should. The peace has been shattered. We, we've created a, a, a terrible thing with grinding gears. Is it because the Lord has moved out of His place? No. It comes back to us. What's it mean to have peace to you? What a precious, precious thing we've been given in Jesus Christ. Peace with God. How, how likely is it that people like you or I could be harmonious with God? But through our Savior, we wouldn't have a chance, would we? Notice the difference he's made. How well have you studied peace? And if you've studied it to some degree, have you ever multiplied in the concept of knowing it? Not just adding up pieces here and there. I'm saying, have you multiplied in your knowledge of the peace he's given to you? Have you taken the time to develop that in your heart and in your mind and to grow in your understanding of that and see the precious value of that and walk according to that? Wouldn't that be different? To grow in his peace? Wouldn't that be different a way your life might look if you spend time growing in grace and growing in peace in a multiplying fashion? 
you can see Paul's or Peter's heart here beating, can't you? He says, I want this for you. Oh, how I want this for you. This is what I'd like to see. I want you to grow in grace and peace through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I will give you this. You cannot have either one of them apart from Jesus Christ. So if you're trying to study them just as some separate item, as I've got grace or I've got peace, and you haven't attached it to Jesus Christ or realized it's from Him, you don't have the right one. Because it's only through Him that we have it in the first place. And it's His to give. It's my peace, He said, in the upper room. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. It's God's grace that's given to us. It's not ours. But you cannot have peace without grace. You cannot have grace without peace. You cannot have either one of them without Jesus Christ. That's the essential thing he says. We've got to know this. And the knowledge here is so interesting to me. This word knowledge speaks of a knowledge that's not just intellectual. But it's a knowledge that has been experienced. It's personal. It's intimate. It's studied, but it's studied through, through the heart experience. It's gained by personal association. It's a knowledge of a person that has brought you the grace and brought you the peace. So I'm not going to pull this out of a dusty book and say that's the way I'm going to study it. The best way to study all these things is to study Christ. To spend time with Him. To walk with Him. To learn to trust Him and depend upon Him. To obey Him. To live that Christian life that we're all called to live, right? To walk with Him. It sounds so simple. But that's where you're going to grow in these things. Because it doesn't happen just in the head, does it? Right here. This is where the knowledge comes from. The knowledge of the heart, you learn, you ascertain things about Christ and what he's given to us. I, I'm pleading to you as if I'm Peter, I think, right now. Say, we need this, don't we? We need this walk with him and we need to grow in him so we can have the things that he has given to us understood better. What a difference that would make for us. Charles Spurgeon said there are some scientists scientists that may be learned by the head, but the science of Christ crucified can only be learned by the heart. Only by the heart. And I add to this a simple thought. Growth does not come by accident. It's not by accident. Growing physically, you ate, you were supposed to eat your carrots with whatever they mixed it with, right? We expect children to eat. We give them those foods that we don't normally eat. My parents had liver and onions a lot, and uh, I couldn't stand it. I just couldn't stand that. And I found out later when we all moved out, they stopped eating them. I said, what does that mean exactly? That was for us, right? They were trying to help us grow. How many of us have thought through, I need to grow an inch this month? We don't do that, do we? We don't think that way. Growth for us physically just seemed to happen. 
I needed new shoes, right? Why? Because I outgrew the last one. We, we go through all these phases in childhood where we're growing and growing and growing, and some of us grow very quickly, and some of us not as quick. But it was, seemed just so natural, we didn't sit down and try to figure out, how am I going to grow an inch? When it comes to spiritual things, the growth is expected of us. He says, Grow! You don't say that to a baby, but you say it to a Christian. Grow! Why does he have to tell us this? Because our hearts are more likely to choose the easiest route. Is that true? We tend to pick the thing that doesn't take the most effort. And to grow in Christ is going to take effort. Intentional effort. To grow in Him. Reading your Bible, that's an intentional thing you choose to do. It doesn't just grab you when you get up and say, read me, does it? You have to pick it up. You have to say, I'm going to give time to this. Prayer, does prayer just happen accidentally? No. That's the interesting thing about the Christian walk. None of it is something that just happened to you and you didn't know how that happened. It's always, do it. Trust Him. Grow in Him. Pray to Him. All these things, are, the commands are all over the New Testament for us to do. It's not going to happen accidentally and growth never will. That's why Peter's begging this little phrase, Oh, that you would grow. Multiply that grace and knowledge you have in Jesus Christ. Let me show you a couple of interesting verses. Because we've been kind of camped here for a little bit. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. We've got to make sure we don't go too long here and worry all those people downstairs. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. This is what God wants. You ever hear what, God, what does God want? This is what God wants. Thus says the Lord... Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor let the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know what? You want a good memory verse for the month? There's a good one. There's a good one. What does the Lord want of you? To understand Him. To know Him. To know what He does and what delights Him. What a rich verse that is. That's one. Now, you're not too far away from Hosea, believe it or not. Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you're into the smaller books. Once you go past Daniel, there's Hosea. Chapter 6, verse number 3. Chapter 6, verse number 3. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. 
His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. I started with that first line, gave it a little emphasis. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Does that sound like somebody who's going to give it a little effort? Press on, press on. But here's what's interesting. These people who are saying this, Hosea is writing this, and he says, this is what you're saying. Let us press on to know the Lord. And then he says in verse number four, but your loyalty is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew, which is, it goes away early. What is that? He says, this is your kind of people. Isaiah or Hosea is saying to the Israelites, he says, this is your kind of people. You say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to know the Lord. I'm going to press on to know. But it's gone by 10 o'clock in the morning. It almost sounds like a New Year's resolution, doesn't it? I'm going to read the Bible this year. And what happens before your middle of February or early March? We lose our sight. What if we set for our ambition this year to know the Lord? What if we set that? I'm going to press on to know the Lord. Is it going to be gone when the dew disappears? Like these folks Hosea was writing to? Are we good at starting, but we don't maintain? And we certainly don't finish. How many unfinished jobs are laying around? I don't know. Let's not ask that question. How many times have you started the ambition of knowing the Lord better and you didn't get very far because you didn't press on? Peter would say when Jose wrote that, he says, Amen! Let's press on! That's what we should do! That's Peter's wish. That's a pastor's wish. You know, there's a lot of things that come in a church. We talk about numerical growth. We talk about changes here, changes there, and different things we can do. But spiritual growth is such a beautiful thing to see in a church. When people are growing and understanding the Lord, how application starts to pour out from that. What do we do with this information? What do we do when we get to know the Lord better? What, what is so cool is when Sunday sermons are working on Monday morning. When people will say, I'm going to live by this because it speaks of my Lord and His grace and His peace and what He's given to me. And I want more. And they're eager. They're eager. That's why Peter's writing to them in such a way. He says, I want you to love it. I want you to want it. Oh, that you have this. And then by the end of the book, he tells them, grow. And he commands them to. Give you one more quote by Spurgeon. One of the best tests of growth in grace is an increase of love for Jesus and a more perfect apprehension of his love for us. Two things a love for Jesus and a more perfect understanding of his love for us. I'll give you just a simple picture of that. It is one study you will never outgrow. It's in the eternal study department in the schools. You can't outgrow this study of Christ. But you need to study it well. 
according to Scripture, guess who you're going to be like someday? You're going to be like him, for you shall see him as he is. If there's going to be a transition between earth and heaven, as we know that we will be changed, how radical must it be? <laughs> for some of us, it's like, woo! <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice if the change was minimal? Because we've grown to know him and love him. Okay, so you heard Peter the pastor here. I'm trying to just stand in his sandals tonight and say, please, folks, we need this too. We need to grow. And if you're going to set some ambition for this year, set it on this. To grow in the peace and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Get to know him and what he's given to you. That will be the need that we have when we get into the next couple of chapters of this book. Because if it's all under the theme, he is able. We have to know him to trust him. And that's what our study is all about. So I think this is a pretty good place for us to say, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is our study tonight. We need to know what you have done for us and the Savior who has done all this to, to bring it to us. So today, tonight, I pray that uh, as we have met here tonight, our hearts have been warmed by all this and our desire is strong to, to follow through and to grow like we're called to grow, to fulfill what you have given to us to do here on this earth. I pray, Lord, that you might challenge us thoroughly with this and not leave it as just a sermon we once heard, but something that triggers a desire in our heart that we just can't get enough of Christ. Draw us to that place. Draw us to that place. For there's nothing greater than to know him and to know him well. So challenge us with this, I pray. And may we not go home just setting it to the side. But may it be a serious conversation in our heart and with you. And we thank you for what you're doing. You're always so good to us. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.